Okay, welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, I'm super psyched today uh, to talk with my good friend, Jordan Hall. Been eager to get him on the show, but he's been traveling around and uh, we haven't had a chance that we connected a little while ago. I really look forward to getting caught up. Welcome, Jordan, to coming and sharing your wisdom. Huh, well, I'm sharing my time. We'll see about wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, I get him excited. You know, we'll see what happens. But let's not set the bar too high. <laughs> Yeah, so um, you know, in the in the past, one of the places that we hit that just struck me as being potentially interesting was a um, you know, in your particular theory, the notion of the singularity has a lot more meaning to it, has a lot more sort of context, and has a certain level of being predicted. Right, it's not just a uh, kind of a statistical observation. Um, there's an underlying dynamic that would predict that this would occur and in some sense point at what it is and what might what it might mean to say something after. Yep. Um, and I can say that from my first person perspective, um, I notice a quickening. I notice mm -hmm. a, uh, almost like a, a palpable acceleration in the rate of change of the context. Yep. Um, in many different ways, which of course we could sort of tease those different ways out if we'd like. Right. And uh, that might be an interesting thing to talk about. It's certainly different than uh, many of the topics that yeah. seem to be circulating. So perhaps Beautiful. focus Love on it. it. All right. Wonderful. Yeah. So the real short snapshot of my own um, take on the singularity. Uh, so as people listening to this will know, you know, uh, in 1996, actually, in parallel to you, I la later learned that I was grappling with this issue of justification. You know, it's a really intense concept and really a way to, to delineate the human person layer from our primate self. It's like a language, proposition, question, answer, justification. Oh my God, justification systems, and they're all over the damn place and takes off and culture over the last hundred thousand years shoots out as a plane of, uh, you know, of existence and behavior, complex adaptive behavior, all that. And then I'm stoned one night in 1997 <laughs> and out falls the tree of knowledge, okay? Just the upside down cones, a circle, and then boom, matter popped out of energy and life popped out of matter and mind, animal mind behavior popped out of life. And then culture, persons popped out of uh, animal primates. <clears throat> and that was, that changed my life, you know, it's like a fundamental, um, reorganization of a schematic for natural science in the world and big history or whatever we want to call it. And then for a while, I was like, well, you know, people would ask me like over the year or after that, say, hey, I found this. I'm like, well, what are those things? <laughs> These cones, what do they actually, you know, represent? It took me a while mm -hmm. to determine this was a vision logic vision, not a propositional network. I mean, it fell out of me intuitively and then I drew it. And some aspects of my system knew it, but other aspects of delineating propositional logos didn't. It was like, what the fuck really are those things? Okay. Um, and then over time, it was like, well, life creates this complexity building feedback loop in the process by which the genetic material is storing information, is regulating protein production, and then variation selection and retention across various levels. Well, that gives rise to this whole tree of life. Okay. And then that nervous system, that nervous system is coding across various elements. It's then engaged in the behavior of the animal as a whole. You have Skinner called that behavioral selection. And it's that selection, variation, retention 
and the way in which information is then coded, generalized into sort of learning evolving behavior patterns in animals. So you get an, and then you get humans and then we're processing the linguistic information and then communicating that in networks. And essentially what emerges then is this, oh, these are com out of matter comes these complex adaptive planes of existence that are networked together as a function of information processing within the system, if you wanna say that, and communication between nodes. So that's what those fucking codes are. And one's at the genetic cell level uh, to give life dimension, one's at the neuron animal level to give mind dimension, and one's at the uh, symbol person level in culture and justification systems, okay? Well, if, if each one of those is a function of the emergence of laying down a information processing communication network system, and that results in a qualitative shift in complex adaptive behavior, and you, you know, the natural patterning systems of our human, little human minds as well, it's one, it's two, it's three, <laughs> wouldn't there be a fourth, okay? Um, and then you're like, huh, you're in the middle, you're, this is 1998, 1999, and you're sort of like, so is there a merging process of an information processing system and communication network that seems to be growing at a higher level of organization uh, than cultural justification? And you're like, boom, you know, fucking 20th century, we just laid down the internet, we built artificial intelligence, we're interfacing now with computational devices, and that bridge between the digital and our culture justification certainly looks a hell of a lot like the way, say, jellyfish looked in 700 million years ago before the fucking Cambrian explosion turned them into full-fledged um, animal behavior scurrying around the world. Okay? Mm. So it's like, we're looking from this angle, then you see the 20th century is like laying down a jellyfish network that's pretty quickly going to jump into some sort of centralized control system the digital world is going to then create an information processing communication network that is, I didn't have the language, but somebody like Stuart Kaufman would say that tap the adjacent possibility space in this network is fucking gonna explode. And it's gonna then fundamentally shift everything that came before. Um, and it's gonna create acceleration and chaos and order chaos, dialectic dynamics. And it's gonna be, exciting and a shit show in the 21st century. Yeah, it's like, that's what it, basically what it says. So it's like, oh my God, there's sort of a really clear logic to a fifth joint point, each one of the, from energy to matter, that's one, matter to life, life to mind, mind to culture, and then culture to digital or whatever. And uh, that becomes then the fifth joint point. And that very clearly is what people like Ray Kurzweil were seeing as the singularity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. One, one characteristic of that would be to point out that um, I've heard this phrase heard, uh, said a lot of times in the last couple of like 18 months, which is in nature, there are no exponential curves. There are S curves that appear right. exponential for a period of time. Totally. Uh, and I would say, hey, the, the singularity is not a, it's not going to go to infinity. It's an S curve. And we're right. at you know, we're in a part of it which is going like this, but it will reach a point. And when it reaches that point, we've actually just shifted to a new call it kind of a qualitative, it's a qualitative transformation. Exactly. If you look at the tree of knowledge, I'll just say that's really, if you, the, the, those cones that do this, those are the S cones coming out yeah. of the thing and then across. So that's 100%. Yeah, exactly. 
Absolutely. And um, so I'm noticing right now, um, I'm downloading, like it's been months since we've actually had a meaningful conversation. It may be months since we had a conversation at all. And I'm having to download your, your, your vocabulary, your system, mm. your structure, um, even like your style of speech and, and language. I'm basically, I'm, I'm trying to catch up right now. Um, I, I was also taken by the fact that the thing that came up was tap, Stuart Kaufman tap. And then a few moments later, you brought it in tap. And so maybe we can, we can uh, so for the next maybe two to five minutes, what I'm proposing is both an exploration of a particular domain of inquiry, but also something like a protocol for impedance matching mm -hmm. to bring us closer into sync. Perfect. So that we can hit a, actually hit a joint point and uh -huh. performatively qualitatively level up. Beautiful. Uh, okay, so um, tap. What's interesting about this notion of tap is you know, in many ways, because of the way that Stuart thinks and is approaching it, it's hyper abstract. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, the actuality of any given search is hyper concrete, and right? it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's actually happening. And right? so if you look at the exploration of a particular soup of molecules in um, uh, kind of chemistry space, mm -hmm. <clears throat> that soup of molecules has, does not have within it um, you know, Stravinsky's right of spring as part of its tap, right? Its tap yeah. consists of minor modifications or modification shifts in chemistry space. Right? Mm -hmm. I think it's very important to kind of grasp the, the right. particularities. Are... Did I, I say the adjacent possible just for people to listening so that tap stands for, maybe I said that or not, but I couldn't remember. So let me just say it. The yeah. adjacent possible is the acronym tap is the acronym for in fact that. let's go ahead and, and recapitulate it because i think it's mm -hmm. it's going to end up being a very important tool because it feels like that's one of the mechanism in independent or mechanism invariant constructs that is driving the whole process and each ver each stage of the process is the mechanism dependent specifics yes right? i think that's largely i think that's said. a nicely way of saying it beautiful so the concept of the adjacent possible initially came out of Stewart's investigation of uh, complex dynamic systems in chemistry yep. and noticing certain uh, curves, which actually tend to look like S curves. And, and then he put together a theory that, that essentially looked at it and said, okay, I, I seem to have a kind of a recursive process where there's a, uh, kind of a, a bunch of possible things that could happen. I think the metaphor that he originally used is like a garage full of, of, of pieces. Okay. And I can imagine that there's a bunch of different possible things that could happen if I put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the adjacent possible is if I take component A, B, and C, and I tried the different combinations, A, B, A, C, B, C, right? I've got that number of combinations. Um, I might notice that something happens when I put, let's say, BC together that forms a new kind of thing that has kind of qualitative reality. You know, so if I stick uh, cilia on the outside of the cell wall, suddenly I've got mobility, which just really is, it's got durability in an evolutionary and evolving landscape. Perfect. <clears throat> so now if I kind of, okay, next move, now I've got A, B, C, and D. D, it consists in this case of the BC combo. So I've still got B as itself and C as itself, but the BC combo is now a thing, which I'm gonna call D. One second. 
my dog found himself on the wrong side of the door. <laughs> um, okay, so what ends up happening is, is you get this, uh, an increase mm -hmm. in the number of objects that can be subject to uh, combination and testing and, and recombine, recombination. Totally. Because every time that you discover one, you still have the ones you used to have. Yep. So you're just increasing the size. And as we know, the uh, it's a geometric expansion. And the number of possible combinations of four objects is, you know, whatever that math Perfect. is, five, yep. six each time. Right? So you get this geometric expansion in the space of possible combinations. Mm -hmm. So now the problem has to do with um, the, the fact that it, there's a certain amount of, of energy involved in any given experiment. Right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's purely combinatorial or um, what would you call it? There's a particular term for this, but it's a, uh, you know, it's trial by error. You, you okay. essentially don't know what's going to happen when you put A and B together until you right. put A and B together. So you got to mm -hmm. test them. So as I uh, begin to move through the threshold of exploring what the what's actually happening in the possibility space, right? I've got actually I've got two very distinct things that are happening. Okay. One is I periodically get overwhelmed mm -hmm. by the amount of things combinations that I could possibly try to put together. Okay. Um, the, actually, there's three. Now that I think about, it, and this is the point. And the, mm -hmm. the, the third is going to be where we get looped back to your reference. Mm. The second is there's actually a change in the in the in the context of what's happening every time the possibility space changes. Right. So now we have to realize we're not actually in a garage; we're in an evolving mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. So when you introduce cilia to the outside of a membrane, you didn't just create a whole new a, a new object. You created a whole new dynamic, right? The yep. world is a world now that has things that are moving around and so, that changes the, the, the whole sort of characteristic context. But then the third is sometimes some of these combinations give rise to uh, things that can search the space right. more efficiently. Right? And that ends up being a fundamental characteristic of the underlying system, which is on one hand, I've got the size of the space of possibility Mm -hmm. uh, and on the second, I have the, degree, the the capacity to search that space of possibility to locate actualities that have, and then the final third is just straight evolution. And then there's a relationship between where are you in the evolutionary uh, frontier in terms of competitions for scarce resources. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the story of the adjacent possible. Great. And to map that back onto your frame, which you're pointing out or noticing is that there's a... Uh, uh, a dominant, almost like a, what are these called? Like an arc of uh, strata, like these stratifying mm -hmm. layers mm -hmm. that are associated with discovery of big systemic upgrades in, and by the way, it's really interesting, in potential first, which mm -hmm. then become realized in actual so, at the so. level of the information processing piece. Mm -hmm. So I have a, uh, an information processing piece, which is strictly kinetic, then the devel development of, of chemistry, which includes specifically the notions of structure, geometry, and catalysts, Beautiful. radically increases the information processing capacity of that domain mm -hmm. in relationship to just strictly kinetic. Mm -hmm. Then I start developing things like um, um, uh, nervous systems, right, which have, have the, the orienting basis of actually being able to move <clears throat> in space in relationship with signals, right, so it reduces um, pure interaction into um, uh, theoretic or mm -hmm. proxy-based interaction, yep. which causes the development of, of the optimization of systems of sensing 
and systems of using signals to create models or you know um, proxies for, and then of course systems of moving, which radically changes the availability. Totally. Um, and in terms then, of the potential space, what I'll say is that it, in terms of what animals are, they become heterotrophs is the technical term. Basically, means they eat other things. Uh -huh, and so yeah. And so then they can it get up and move around and eat something else. And that's a big shift from fungi and plants, although they sort of grow into eating other things, getting up and eating something else and sitting down is a cool potential space. Uh, in right, terms right. Of the so, energy <laughs> and this is the key, right? So mm -hmm. it's almost like the whole space becomes the D in my previous example. Exactly. Right? So, and what we look at is when we look inside the whole space, we realize that D actually contains a whole new set of stuff. So I have a, a whole, like a qualitative, I got a kind of a quantitative adjacent possible. Yep. And I have a qualitative adjacent possible. Exactly. And when we move into, into nervous system space, suddenly I've got all the things that happen in the in the OG field of things, but now I've got this whole new one, which is the adjacent possible in nervous system space, which has a whole new set of things that happen just in the variables of possible nervous systems. Exactly. Um, and so these two movements from the, the quantitative and the qualitative and this verticality of once you've developed nervous system or developed behavior or developed mm -hmm. culture, you know, that's, it, it sits on top of the previous levels. John, John and I agree. It's the sensory motor loop of adaptation, you know, which is basically also under the Aristotle layer of the animal's soul. It's the sensory motor loop of functional form, which gets the animal up and gets them into macro behavioral mechanical space. Mm. Um, so then I'm going to shift a little bit here. Uh, one other thing that came up for me was something like, ah, um, so I'm not sure if this metaphor is going to work for me. It, it was a, it was a point of insight back in the day. You may recall, um, there was this thing where Intel tried to promote their chips sure. by making this, this canonical notion of, uh, uh, how did they do it? Gigahertz or something like that. Remember, okay. or, uh, the chips were the chips were promoted by how many cycles per second they could mm -hmm. execute mm -hmm. on. Okay, clock speed, clock mm -hmm. speed, right? Mm -hmm. And by the way, as we as we sort of know, that's not really fundamental, but they were able to get some pretty good marketing mileage out of it. Mm -hmm. And one of the characteristics of clock speed is that um, it shifts your notion of time. Mm -hmm. So you can say, okay, I've got a a sense of like objective time, which we're just going to say right for now is like. Let's just call it clock time, which we even be okay. more precise, which is atomic decay time. Um, and but on the other one, I've got information processing time, and those aren't the same, right? Oh. Because information processing time is gated by the amount of information processing functions mm -hmm. that can be uh, made in a particular unit of atomic decay time, nice entropic and entropy time. Yep. So it's interesting to think about that in the context of the singularity. What I would totally. say is the singularity is a recognition that um, the sort of an increasing relevance, almost like a dominance of mm -hmm. the shifting into a more and more pure abstraction of information processing time yes. and away from uh, entropy or atomic, atomic time. There's a data compression capacity that jams stuff in uh, you know, one way of thinking about that. So at a phenomenological time level, when people get a really intense moments, they'll experience time as slowing. The phenomenological experience of time is slowing. 
what's happening to the system is it's trying to, it brings all its attentional mechanism to suck up and process as most information as possible in that time. And that's part of the juxtaposition of what's happening there. Right, right, exactly. So, um, nice. So uh, there was a, uh, when the internet was a little bit mature, there were these things I think called EMUs or something like that, but they're, they're effectively emulators. Yeah, emulators of old-fashioned hardware video games mm. like Pac-Man. Yeah, uh-huh. sure. But here was one of the interesting variables is that if you didn't have the right kind of, if you didn't think about it right, you're running Pac-Man on kind of your modern or whatever, contemporary computer, but it's running at a much faster clock speed, right? So Pac-Man is suddenly running super fast. <laughs> Um, because the original hardware didn't have a notion of clock speed as a variable. Mm-hmm. It just was running something on the, uh, as if clock speed was an ontological primitive, when right. in fact, as it turns out, it's a, it's a variable. So from the, if you imagine, like shift back and forth, me, third person watching it, sees it going really, really fast. Mm-hmm. But if I could find some way of kind of being Pac-Man from the inside, mm-hmm. yep. it's work, it's moving at Pac-Man speed, right? Yes. So that's the, that's the really interesting thing. So if you're... Uh, uh, if you, you recognize that there, there is actually two very distinct kinds of time going on. There's the, the time that is somehow bound by, let's just call for the moment context. So we were using the previous, I was using the previous terms, entropy time and atomic okay. decay time, mm-hmm. which is yep. having to do with, well, gated by things like general relativity. At the very level, at the very least, it's gated by things like the speed of light. Mm-hmm. Um, and then but on this other side, you have something like information processing time, yep. which is gated by the current state of the adjacent possible in the context of the capacity to actually transmit computational steps in an actualized information oh. processing system. Right. And so the actual amount of, of kind of bits or the bandwidth of, of the world, the universe as we understand it. Right. So mm-hmm. for, for now, I'll just mm-hmm. assume Gaia is the only... Yep. Uh, information processing system in the universe. Totally. Which is almost certainly wrong, but for the moment, we'll just assume that. <laughs> um, the kind of bits per second of Gaia yep. as an information processing system uh, has gone up enormously totally. since life. Right? Yep. The original amount, uh, the baseline of just atoms doing atom stuff has stayed mm-hmm. relatively constant, but each structural layer radically increases the information processing happening inside this particular container. Totally. And if I run, if I just sort of drew, drew a line, just describing the amount of bits per second, I get myself the Kurzweil curve. Yep. Right? And that would be the dominant, like that's the causal factor. That's, that's the thing. And of course, the underlying construct is that's the search of the adjacent possible. Um, and okay, so now we get to, I mean, I'll give a quick, so if you just want to go out in nature, watch a bee on a flower, okay? They're, the bee's operating at a different space-time set of constraints than the flowers. Yeah. Okay, so the bee is the bee's like that fast Pac-Man. The bee can, in real time, I'll often talk in real animal time, okay? Now, flowers and trees do really weird, cool shit, but their macro, the, the size and time it takes for them to metabolize and shift is qualitatively different than the bee bouncing around the top of the flower. So it's now, it's operating in a particular space-time speed that is qualitatively different than the flower is, even though they're both complex adaptive systems, uh, but the bee's upgraded. 
Yeah, and you can do the same thing from between the flower and the sun. So, so then we say, okay, when we're looking at this, what my mind turns to now is, okay, now what's, what's this, this moment look like? This seems, no, how do I say this right? Obviously, the only thing that's actually worth considering right now. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, it's, it's like you're, you're sitting there at, at the moment of your child's birth and you're wondering, what should I be thinking about right now? Should I be like looking at stock prices? Should I be thinking about <laughs> what kind Eagles of Eagles did not play well last year. <laughs> like, no, 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 that right there. Or, or more specifically, you're literally at the moment of your own birth wondering about the, the, the exactly who's going to win the next week's football game. No. This is it. This is what this like. This is what's up. This is by far the most like even every concept just blows apart. I can't even use the word most meaningful because the concept of meaning is liquid. It's fluid. It's even like vapor in the context of the of, of what's what's going on in this. X marks point. the cosmic coordinate spot at the moment. <laughs> OK, so given that orienting basis, hey everybody, what should we be looking at this? What's happening? <laughs> So what's happening at that point? We, you and I have talked about this a few times, but you know, we've uh, literally have gone around the sun at least twice since then. So let's take a look. What's happening at that point? Okay, so if we back up and just use the, the comp, so the hypothesis that we can learn from the past. So far, so good. So far, we've actually been able to do a little bit of that in, in the existence of the universe. So we'll, we'll stick with it. And we notice that one of the things that happens is there's a... Um, each joint point is a, is a location in the possibility space of the prior joint point. Mm -hmm. right? So we could say that behavior sits in a location in nervous system space. Yep. A certain location in nervous system space where the conditions are have come together that to give rise now to the possibility of behavior. And uh, I will I'll add the little term animal mental behavior, but that's the kind of behavior referring to. Good. Yeah, thank you. Just to be specific relative to flower behavior. Yes, yes. Animal mental behavior, which then, of course, becomes the joint point that gives rise to uh, culture. Yep. All right. So we're now looking at, and hmm, one of the things that, that, that comes into my mind, and I don't really know exactly why or what, what is, is this notion of resonance mm. or um, like smoothness, laminar flow as opposed to turbulent flow. Um, if you look at like the, I was always taken by the, the morphological relationship between the ichthyosaurus and the dolphin. Huh. Okay. Because they're both solving for the same fundamental kinematic problem of mm -hmm. maximum velocity for minimum energy in water. So Perfect. they're going to end up looking more or less the same. Yeah? Okay. So there's something about a problem that is being solved for in say, for example, nervous system space, yep. that it reaches the equivalent of resonance, the equivalent of laminar flow uh, in its own terms. Beautiful. That mm -hmm. gives the, this, this opportunity for a radically new uh, return. Now, I just, I'm just gonna expand this notion of resonance because it's, uh, okay. it's gonna be crucial to make, to make the leap here. Okay. And again, so now the visual image is the, the classic uh, signal to noise ratio per unit energy in a, uh, an information transmission system. So an, an nice. antenna, uh -huh, okay? Uh -huh, uh -huh. So I have a particular antenna and I'm broadcasting a particular signal at a particular amount of energy. And by the way, on a certain frequency, okay? Perfect, okay. 
Uh, let's just make it very, very concrete. I'm broadcasting it at a, a FM 949. All right. Okay. Now, if I do a graph of the signal to noise ratio, um, and I'm tuning and I'm moving it across from 90, you know, 89 to 90 each, mm -hmm. each step, obviously by tenths, because that's what I've defined. Um, what I notice is that the noise is basically the entire system. Mm -hmm. So even though the energy is constant, the amount of energy is exactly the same, almost all that energy is converted into noise mm -hmm. at 89 and at 90 and mm -hmm. at 92. Somewhere around 93, I start getting some signal. Right. So mm -hmm. the signal to noise ratio starts doing this. Right. And you know, if you think about the way it sounds to your ear, you can make out that there's a channel there. It's not just yep. stat. That's right. right. I get to 94, five, I can maybe even begin to make out the fact that there's, you know, oh, it's it's Telemundo or it's mm. sports <laughs> radio or whatever. I can right, begin right, to get right, some right. some pattern starts to pop mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. I get a 947, I can hear it. 949 though, right? And and it's this shape, right? It's that that mm. shape. This yes. is the thing, like Love this it, shape yeah. right here. And I, and I flip. So if I look at my graph at 94.9, it's now you know, not almost all signal, but it's a lot signal, right? right. A whole lot, like 95% signal and 95% right. noise. Right? So right. I had a, a small space in the, um, mm -hmm. I guess the- Bandwidth or whatever. A small change in the, in, the, in, the, in the underlying variable, but gave yep. rise to an enormous, like massive shift in the, in the conversion of energy into signal, right? And the Perfect. hypothesis is that's what's happening at a joint point is Love that it. there's a signal to noise ratio going on at the mechanical level of a particular domain. Totally. Um, by the way, many, many different locations in that lo where the signal is non-zero and therefore useful work, use useful signal processing happens. Right. But there's a point of something like a resonant frequency. Now I'm just like having to say it like pure metaphor right now where there's a pop. And the signal yep. noise ratio explodes, and because that the amount of energy uh, needed to provide the basic signal of that structural level is now trivially afforded, you get this huge thing up here, which is now available for exploration of an entirely novel set of possibilities. Hundred percent. So, in just in concrete terms, you may see my dog Benji walking around here. His capacity to tune into this conversation is limited. Yes. Yeah, exactly. 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 It, doesn't have the, it doesn't have the language acquisition device and system of justification that would afford him to pull the signal out of the noise in relationship to this narrative. Exactly. His capacity to, so from a, the good, let's just pound on that metaphor a little bit to blow it apart. So you've got um, his capacity to hear the modulation of air and perceive the fact that there is clearly sound modulation going on is better than ours. Like he can hear that totally. shit. Right. His capacity to convert that signal into all the other steps that are living inside our signal processing mechanism is well, uh, better than a um, lizard and better nowhere near the same as a human. Exactly. So like probably his ears popped up when I said Benji upstairs. <laughs> Right, so cocktail party phenomenon. You know, I've seen him because I've had that conversation, and dogs, of course, uh, afford their capacity to make pairing to particular symbols, but the capacity for the linguistic justification and the propositional network meaning, obviously, is yeah, they can't tone into that. Right. Okay. So then, if we if we apply that to this moment, we say, okay, we've been exploring culture space. Mm -hmm. Um. 
And just like the previous example, there have been locations in culture space where the relative signal to noise ratio has gone, is, is sort of above the base noise, mm -hmm. which gives rise to certain sort of efficiencies or adv advantages in the fitness landscape for processing, you know, creating a, a efficient use of energy and stuff like that. Um, and there's been something along the lines, and, and this, by the way, would be a very nice, again, we can kind of pivot back to Kurzweil and we can also mm -hmm. think about things like the, you know, the, what the hell happened in the West in 1600, right? There was some discovery of some particular, mm, what's it called? A recursive reification process. Right? So this is where each iteration actually produces its own artifact, but more meaningfully produces a attunement mechanism. Right? So each next generation has a higher capacity to orient more towards resonance than yep. the previous. Yep. So each generation is its own whatever, has mm -hmm. its own capacities in terms of the flatness of its competitive landscape. But the most important thing is it also affords a attunement closer towards the center. Right. And I, and I would say market forces in the way in which economics started to code energy, money energy, uh, as well as technological developments in the modern and modern system, there were some capacities for deeply broadening energy information through market economic money structure. Oh, let's throw out, well, let's throw out all kinds of stuff. I um, mean, right, that, the, 100%, yeah. Liter yeah. Liter literacy, which is- yep. you know, the printing press, capacity. Um, Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, it, science, it, it, which of course it, it, sits on top of literacy. Yep. Um, Francis, we understand right. it, like not- Right, no, the, the, it, but, our point is right. The modern, there was an intersection of what becomes the modern sort of adjacent shift or, or sort of evolution not, and, and the fundamental, what becomes then the opportunity for globalization and then uh, what now then lays down the digital information structures. Um, but the precursor clearly we can see at the modernity um, intersections. So it's interesting. I, I notice, um, wondering if in if we could, the current state is very uncomfortable. I mean, we definitely have moved away from things where there's a, uh, we've moved into the ability to create um, a lot of feedback on our context that um, is outside of the, uh, call it like received or natural management process. So our biologically, that stack, right, the verticality of the yep. tree, um, one of the things we're doing is we're actually processing our context outside of the stability yep. of the, the, that stack affords. Yep. I'm wondering if previous examples have that. I don't, I don't think so, which is interesting. This is a different, uh, if you do a tree of knowledge draw on it, our capacity to pull the material culture and turn it into a technology that then processes information, creates a material culture weird interface that we have not seen before. That's why it feels artificial or is there something unusual about it? We are creating an interface here that has not really happened in the normal, you know, consistent stack of evolution. I'm, I'm gonna guess that the examples in the past would have been something like overgrazing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. mobility, when animals had the ability to basically just categorically outcompete plants, yeah, it would actually de destroy the energetic availability in their local environment and 100%. just starve to death. 
So they had to learn how to come into a new equilibrium with their context, which involved migrations and certain phenotypes that had a particular metabolic rate, capacity of energy. My guess is that's probably the comparable is that, and I'm sure there are previous examples of that. Yep. In some sense, it's pretty simple, right? You're, mm-hmm. As you increase your capacity to uh, extract energy from your local environment, mm-hmm. if you do so in a fashion that uh, outstrips the local environment's capacity to regenerate energy, you actually have mm-hmm. extinguished yourself inadvertently <laughs> through your right. own efficiency. Mm-hmm. And this is and what it, certainly Daniel and you and others, you know, in terms of what humans then did relative to animals, why we're not right. an apex predator, we qualitatively shifted the speed with which we evolved. Yeah, exactly. Extract. So, so we can look at that. I mean, that's a simple design constraint. We've said it many, many times, but clearly the only, you know, if we say like we're processing outside of the integrity of the system, that can't happen. So we've got to actually begin to use the system itself, right? Culture has to become capable of providing constraints on its own activities to maintain, in fact, even just be increasingly perfectly aligned with the integrity of the system Beautiful. On, on which it operates. So that's a, excellently said. That's, that's the simplicity. No, no, there are no variations on the theme that are not that, that are not extinguished, self-extinguishing in a finite, and by the way, very short-term time. That's right. So, I think Forrest yeah. would say we've got to get man, machine, and nature in proper alignment in this spot. Right, exactly. Okay, so hmm. okay, and this is now yeah, definitely where your stuff starts to get really hot because the other piece that happens is we've got this this really interesting problem of the subjective. And in the in the story thus far. There are things happening at the level of the subjective. We kind of ignore them. We don't really spend a lot of time talking about the psychology of, of a catalyst in chemistry space. We're very focused on the, ex, the objective. We're very focused on information, energy conversions. But in this case, we're very suddenly very, very focused on the subjective, not the least of which is because we're involved. Um, <laughs> Nicely said. <laughs> but yeah, that's totally true. So there's something happening there, right? There's something very profound about the relationship between the subjective and the objective and the shift. That's exactly right. Yeah, in fact, so in my my own uh, journey, hmm, let me see if I can figure out where this is coming from. Yeah, there's one one of the things that keeps coming up is something like a, a flip or an inversion, not an elision, but an inversion. So for example, you've got the construct of rivalrous and anti-rivalrous. Love it. Mm-hmm. And the hypothesis is not that the rivalrous goes away, mm-hmm. but that we just have a very simple flip that the rivalrous now becomes subordinate and the anti-rivalrous becomes the dominant characteristic in the relationship. Perfect. Yep. Right? Um, in the context of something like uh, game A and game B, which is actually a subsidiary frame on top of that more fundamental one. Yep. Same thing, right? It's, it's not that the game A style behaviors ev- evaporate from reality, but it's rather that they become embedded in and subordinate to a larger game B frame. Right, right. Um, so for example, like I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, competition mm-hmm. continues to happen. It flourishes, oh, all right. It flourishes actually, the competition mm. flourishes, a level of competition like the license we've never seen before, mm. but it now happens entirely in a context of mm. a higher collaboration. Nice. Mm-hmm. 
In fact, let me make a little shift here. This is interesting. I don't know if Ari is going to, going to share the video of our conversation. So he's, uh, I'm going to say a young man, relatively. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much younger than okay. me. He is definitely something younger than me. Mm -hmm. uh, and his, his life experience is really interesting. And one of the things that he is a practitioner of is uh, competitive paragliding. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're in the most kind mm -hmm. of like gliding wings. Sure. Of I, I just talked to him yesterday, by the way. Oh, that's really interesting. So do you have any <laughs> idea how much younger than he is than us? <laughs> I, I think he's around, you know, early 30s. Okay. So he's like a like a young millennial, but not like a Gen Z. Mm -hmm. So competitive paragliding. So here's the story he tells. And I should say, by the way, I love the story. Hmm. So you're paragliding. And the, one of the dominant characteristics of paragliding has to do with the ability to perceive and most effectively take advantage of the energy stored in thermals. Mm. Right? Hmm. So air, heated air mm -hmm. going up and or being shaped by the topography going up, mm -hmm. air going up, you ride that, you find it, it carries you up. And of course, your primary energy is the trade-off between mm -hmm. the lift of your wing and gravity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he who is able to go the highest in the air has mm. sort of a major advantage in the, in the, in the game. Um, okay, mm. now perception uh, in paragliding, you're, you're actually perceiving a very large physical territory. You're high up in the air, you can see a lot. Mm -hmm. um, your ability to move from point A to point B is, is relatively slow in comparison to that space. Mm. And it's extremely path dependent. Right? Once you chose a particular direction, your ability <laughs> to reverse course and come back is a lot worse. That makes sense. <laughs> so what happens is your, your sense-making is a huge premium on sense-making, right? Your perception of the larger space and making very effective choices of where to spend your precious potential energy is pretty much decisive. Nice. Also, by the way, it's really hard to fly. <laughs> okay, so your your whole kind of body system is deeply, deeply like trying to not die. Right? So it's focusing really hard and maintaining and doing all kinds of, I'm sure, minor adjustments and efficiency to get the maximum amount of yield per you know turn and all that other stuff. Right? So you got like a whole thing there while simultaneously you're trying to like, you know, mm. and it's happening fast, like minute to minute, yeah. hyper complex system, things are changing and moving constantly. So one of the things that is discovered is watching other people, or I was going to say perceiving other people, is like the dominant signal of where the energy is. Right? So you can yeah. literally just snapshot the landscape. You're seeing that guy is going up. Okay, I guess that's where it's mm -hmm. at. What happens, of course, is you get a feedback loop, meaning mm -hmm. there's a construct that they call the gaggle, meaning everybody who's valid, everybody who's mm -hmm. a valid player mm -hmm. has the same underlying strategy, which mm -hmm. is to follow the gaggle. Hmm. which means the gaggle is an autopoetic rec uh, recursion right um it's searching hmm. the gaggle now becomes an entity the gaggle becomes a thing each individual is a perceptive agent of the gaggle i love it bound together by the mutual necessity of staying within the slipstream of the gaggle lest being existent like completely removed from the competition totally so it's oh, the reality right. of the peloton it's real like hmm. that kind of a characteristic it's that right. that notion, okay and there's a because of the the nature of subjective experience when you're in this kind of a state there's actual the only way to know that you are in the gaggle is perceived at a feeling level mm. you're, you're really actually in just the same way that you're feeling the the, the micro shifts in the movements of the parameter of the mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. paraglider Correct. you're also feeling your micro shifts in relationship with the evolving location 
and, and characteristic of the gaggle, right? You have a consciousness, you have gaggle consciousness, you are part of gaggle consciousness, right? There's right. something going on there. Right. And, and my proposition to him was, well, yeah, this makes sense. Like you're, this is an exaptation of the basic human capacity to mm -hmm. be a niche transitioning organism, right? That's what totally. we are, is a collective intelligence. We are a distributed cognition. Like these individual human bodies are vastly less relevant than what happens when they're part of a gaggle. Loved. Okay. Was there more to that example? Let me see. No, I think that's enough. So that was the, that was like the, the, the key payload was that set of metaphors and, the, and that that notion of the, the felt sense mm -hmm. and the the actual felt sense of like an expanded consciousness because yep. you are actually able to perceive the agency, the signal processing compression of other humans mm -hmm. doing things out there as an extension of your own sensorium. Which is that, that Marshall McLuhan insight, right? Yep. Your mind doesn't actually have any notion of there being an ontological relationship between itself and its sensorium. If, I've, if I'm a blind man and I've got a stick, that stick is a part of my sensorium in exactly, this, exactly the same way. The decided person's eyeball is part of their sensorium, right? There's no difference there. The John will be happy with a 4E cognition, perspectival, <laughs> participatory, um, collective intelligence dynamic. That was just all right. Out. So you are a part of the gaggle. Okay. Now, why did this come up? What's the, what's, do you remember where I was? When I, cause yeah. I well, one of the things that at the doorstep of that was, Hey, wait a minute. Notice we're talking about a lot of behavior, natural science stuff and subjectivity is not high end here. And right. we got to somehow bring subjectivity, subjectivity into this. And so then you tied in his experience and that is a high end participatory experience where subjectivity, objectivity, collective is all got to be in residence. What's really not part of that story is propositional. Mm, totally. One of the points he makes is you're definitely not like thinking about what's going on. Right? That is a bad machine for that function. Like you are. Hopefully you're in the flow and your ego is just on for the ride. <laughs> exactly. It's just on for the ride. It may, it may do some interesting kind of like uh, post game feedback, you know, Hey, John. I mean, you know, I'd afford an announcement. It's like, oh, you caught that win. Good. But if it tries to get in front of the fucking thing and say, go this way, because I think this is happening, you're fucked. Yes, exactly. You're in the word like that is the word of art. You are fucked. OK, so very interesting. Right. Now that's so we have two things pop out. One is this nice construct of the gaggle, which I think for me has a love it. Yeah, uh, no, that network. that that networked a number of things together. I deeply appreciate it. And the proposition that it's an example of the basic human thing, right? The thing that humans have been writing is the ability to form gaggle consciousness, which Brett Weinstein would say is just consciousness. <laughs> that's just, that's what consciousness is. Consciousness evolved and emerged as, as, uh, as a, a function of the necessity and capacity to enable this level of distributed cognition. Okay. We're not going to go there, but, you know. No, that's fine. I'm, I'm with you. So. So there's something about that. I remember the notion of the gaggle, the peloton has to do with the realization, the recognition that there is actually a search algorithm of, of resonance. We're actually looking for what you might call the straightest line in thermal space. Perfect. Yeah? You're looking for the most efficient micro adjustments in your location that most effectively uses the energy that you've got available right now to find the highest upgradient in energy space, potential energy space for a uh, uh, paraglider, so as to 
achieve the highest level of competitive advantage and, and everybody else is doing the same kind of thing. And this is a great example of that inversion where there is a, uh, everybody's competing to get the, their local selective advantage in the highest gradient, but because you have to be connected to the gaggle to have any valid success in competition, it's held in a larger collaboration. Right. And everybody feels that. So even though at the end, the end of the race, somebody is the winner, there's a very distinct sense that this is the kind of thing that is not a zero-sum game. Right. right? Beautiful. Yeah, so that's, that's a really great example, right? That, that notion of the inversion of what's happening right now. So to bring it all the way back, what I would say, I'm going to throw this out there, is that the inversion of the objective and the subjective. Yep. Right, that we are, and people have said this in the past, like the, the phrase of the previous generation was conscious evolution. Yep. Right? So flipping it, there's a, a consciousness, an awareness of the notion of evolution. Um which is itself now beginning to steer. Evolution now becomes no longer a driving process as we're seeing, right? Fill in the blank, you know, just uh, dentistry. Totally. There, you know, if, if we were to suddenly instantaneously remove the technology of dentistry, the next generation would have a lot of trouble because we have selected for, um, at a biological level, people whose teeth would not have survived into adulthood prior to the existence of dentistry. So we've created mm. a shift in the context through our own agency yep. that has changed the underlying uh, ecosystem of the evolving landscape. Right? So we are taking conscious responsibility for our own evolutionary environment. We're just not good at it yet. Right? <laughs> we're, right now, still, we're operating with very, very narrow totally. uh, constraints. We aren't really, it's like, it's like we're, you know, we're teenagers at the end of the day. And we're teenager, teenage, I hate to use this phrase, but we're basically like teenage gods. And we've mm -hmm. got, totally. we have capacity for taking over a meaningful fraction of the directionality of evolution, but we actually haven't actually owned that. We're not like, yeah, yeah. Guess what, guys? It's it's on us. We're gonna have we're gonna have to really, right. really own these choices. It's funny, like it's like um, you know the concept of eugenics mm -hmm. was a sort of brutally adolescent and egoist ego egoic Total. construct. Yep, but it, it's not anymore. Now it's a mandate. Like we can't help it. We got no choice in the matter. Like we are stuck. Every choice we make is has massive cascade effect impacts on the underlying uh, sort of fitness landscape for us and every other biological organism. We're not sort of eugenics in the kind of 19th century humans. We have a theory. No, no. We're talking about the ongoing thrivingness of the ecosystem is an intrinsic consequence of the choices we make. Totally. We got to make good choices. That's it. Like effective choices, steering life is our gig now. That's us. You broke it. You bought it. Love it. Um, so it seems like in some sense, that's the, the natural con consequence of the singularity. When you realize that it's not this, it's not an escape from reality. It's not some sort of pop out. It's actually this. Yes. The S point is exactly the moment where we actually literally, I'm just having, having an image of like a, uh, like a grandmother, like just kind of putting her hand on the hand of like a scared child yeah. and just calming down the nervous system. Right. It's like, Hey, calm down, slow yes. it down. This sort of kinetic, reckless, indifferent exploration of the adjacent possible now actually has to be steered nice right the, the 
competitive landscape of he who gets to the higher point of the Jason possible, I'll compete he who didn't. Right. It's over. We now have an inversion. We are going to continue to explore the space of the Jason possible, but now within a larger context. Brilliantly said, man. Uh, so in the language of you talk, basically we built the tree, which is science from a behavioral perspective and it afforded us technological control and it allowed us to accelerate into this global thing, but gave us a physicalist external mechanistic mentality. Mm. And now we need to flip mm. over to the coin and be like, fuck, we're actually real conscious agents. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> fuck. We're like, we're real conscious agents and that comes with stuff. <laughs> like, like a choice. And like we're on the edge of this fucking cliff at some level and we better sail nicely off into an S-curve relaxation or else we're going to blow the whole fucking thing up. Yeah. Which, which is interesting because this is, um, you know, this, is, this has been learned at a deep mythopoetic level at each point in the joint point. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the animal learned in this case, from an evolutionary. Right, of course. Mm -hmm. There was a, an evolved learning at the level of the species, some relationship between phenotype, metabolism, and movement that entered into equilibrium with its environment. Right. So as to actually be able to establish some sort of long-term beingness. Yep. Um, and you know, we're, we're, we're learning that too. And of course, we're learning it in this really interesting way, <laughs> which is that we're now using whatever the inverse, the opposite, or the other side of, in, of evolutionary process is. We're using conscious process. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just gonna tag at that. Yep. Conscious process is, is not the same as evolutionary process in consideration of how to navigate the adjacent possible. Um, right, I would say then, our, yeah. so the cultural thing is then, so animals are learning across, they're shifting their behavioral investment patterns through natural selection. And it's a long, you know, and that's happening a lot faster in plants, but it's still taking a long time. Then we jump up at the culture person level, and then we learn through intergenerational patterns, okay? But now as we accelerate across the line, we actually have to learn within generational patterns. <laughs> you know, like we got the time of learning, that's a, the window of learning has got to be conde is condensed and accelerating. And so we got to catch a lot in a shorter window. Yeah, so let's um, flag, line, next chapter, big one. So let's see. To provide the, the vocabulary for this, I want to point to a game that Jim Rutt created called Network huh. Wars. Huh. Okay. It's a beautiful game because it's- I'm talking like, to him next week. <laughs> great. You should, you should download the game and play it. It's, uh, right. it's available on the iPhone. All right. Um, it's very simple. Right? You have a, a graph of nodes that have some connections, as far as I can tell, just randomly generated. Uh, the number of nodes, I think, is always constant, but the geometry is always random. Hmm. And you have a number of, and the nodes are coded by colors. So each, each color represents a player, okay. an agent, an agent uh -huh. in the system. Uh -huh. uh, and each node can be loaded with a certain amount of energy or points. Okay. Uh, each player starts with a uh, pseudo-random distribution of nodes under their control. Okay. And the same amount of energy concentrated across those nodes. Gotcha. I, have, I think it's like 20 points or something like that. It may be like 882. It may be 4444. Right? And obviously, mm -hmm. in the context of the geometry of my energy and the geometry of the space 
and the geometry of the other players creates the field of potential conflict. Perfect. Love it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is a purely evolutionary game. At the end, there can be only one. Right? So the nature of the game is you sort of try to move your node to take over other nodes, and you basically just do a series of coin flips between the energy in whichever one ends up going to zero energy loses. And either, by the way, a node can go to zero. You have to have at least two left in your side to be able to migrate one. Okay. And, and everything you've got migrates, and you only leave one behind. So there's a whole bunch of interesting characteristics. Okay. All right, so that's the game. Now, the players you're playing against thus far right now are all AI, right? So okay. it's you and four, I think, or five AI. Okay. All right, that's the background. Gotcha. I'm bringing this up for the point. The point I'm making is the point of where we are. This is a meta-strategic conception. Because at the end of the day, what's really happening right now, if we're thinking about the language previously, is it's essentially consciousness versus evolutionary process, mm. right? Or choice versus pure causality. Good. Something from Forrest's language. Oh, I can that is the me. fundamental conflict of the day. Mm. That's what's really happening. Mm. There's a, uh, a pure evolutionary process. Right? There's the, the momentum of billions of years of evolution driving behavior mm. in the cultural milieu that mm. is a search algorithm that has um, very high levels of sophistication. It's an artificial intelligence mechanism. Gotcha. Right? Mm -hmm. By the way, I'm going to use the tag NPC, non-player character, okay. to the degree to which as a homo sapiens, your, your action is guided by this momentum. You are an NPC. Interesting. Love it. Okay. You're non-participating. You're not making choices. You are causal. Okay. Nice. So the dynamic relationship between causal and choice is the line. Okay. Now, in the current context, the underlying characteristics of the causal system is extinguishing. Mm. If we continue to run in the various, the, the logic of an arms race in the adjacent possible with competition superior to collaboration, competition using collaboration. Think about how that works, right? Nice. The military industrial complex is a machinery, an instrumentality specifically selected for its capacity to yoke collaboration in service to competition. Right, 100%, brilliant. Okay, if we, if we continue to move forward according to the logic of that particular momentum, that, mm -hmm. that, that structure, mm -hmm. this is a self-extinguishing game. Right. The exactly. game ends and it ends like in the next five years, right, soon. All right, on the other side of that line is choice. Now, Jim's game is very nice because one of the things you notice is there's one of you and there's five of them, and maybe four. Let me just go with four. So in some sense, the odds are stacked against you. They literally have four times as much embodied energy as you have, okay? And go, right? I begin to play. Now, what you notice, as you notice in his game, you notice one thing. I'm going to add one more to our story. And the other the one more is really important. So in his game, what you notice is that a choice for the moment, it affords you what we might call a transcendent perspective, meaning right. you can observe the game. Mm -hmm. You can actually perceive the game itself. You're not mm -hmm. intrinsically in the game, right? The right. AI <clears throat> players are not 
able to perceive the game. They are not able to have shamanic insight. They're not able to get outside the box. They are playing within the box, right? Running very fast right. clock speeds. They can make effectively instantaneous choices, but they're running whatever algorithm they have. But okay. they can't get the view from above. They can't step outside. So what I can do is I can begin to model their parameter space. I know, for example, that AI will never uh, attack from a position of parity or weakness. Mm. Right? So if I've got a two node and they've got a two node. From the AI's perspective, that's just not a valid move. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, of course, have a choice. I can choose to do that. That choice creates a difference. In this case, it creates a, an opportunity, a strategic advantage. My strategic advantage is I can change the rules of the game from their point of view. I can engage in behaviors that they can't be engaged in. I can invent new behaviors that they can't access. Um, I can also take a look at trying to understand the nature of how the game itself operates from the outside. I can try to take do conceptual modeling and say, oh, there's a whole new concept that I just came up with called perimeter. They don't have a notion of perimeter. I have a notion of perimeter. I can look at that the construct and say, okay, if I can create a territory that has a perimeter, the way the game works, I'll actually generate more energy at the point mm. of contact. And that will actually generate a higher level of capacity, right? So what I can do is I can try to use these capacities to perceive the topography of the, of the landscape. Cool. By the way, I'm invoking the gaggle here as well. Right, right. Um, okay. Uh, and this can give me advantages in shaping the landscape. This is a key thing, right? What the, what the AI does is the AI always is doing an evolutionary process on the landscape. What consciousness can do is consciousness can change the landscape. We can do topographic landscaping. By doing topographic landscaping, we can create these environments. Like one of the ones that you can do in this game is let's you and him fight, meaning... Mm. I can create, I can look at how the AI operates and I can create just a little tiny shift that makes it so that from the AI's perspective, I'm kind of not even there, meaning yeah. they don't perceive me as a valid move. And so they just start fighting amongst each other, which processes their potential energy into entropy. And that creates a possibility for me moving in. Brilliant. Something that's not in their, it's not in their, their adjacent possible, it's not in their portfolio. Okay, so in this, in this conflict, Right, which is the conflict of subordinating conflict to collaboration. One of the moves, like one of the, the, the fundamental advantage that choice has over causation is that choice can innovate fundamentally new approaches mm -hmm. on the basis of the capacity to perceive the landscape itself as a subject of change. Love it. That's the move that you see in this game. And it's worth playing the game a couple thousand times to just even notice in yourself how your own mind does that kind of thing. Now, on the other side of it is in this particular game, the it's hardwired. There's one player and four AIs. In our world, every NPC could shift from being an NPC to being a PC. Huh. Every NPC that moves from having their energy directed by pure causal structure into participating in choice intrinsically. And this is a key element right here. Intrinsically, this last piece, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say it just sort of as a proposition, but I believe that it can be defended as a valid, like a major claim about reality. Every conscious agent proceeding on the basis of choice is intrinsically collaborative with every other. Right. There's a fundamental proposition about the nature of reality, just like the gaggle. Right? 
once you recognize that participation in the gaggle is sine qua non to having any valid participation in the, in the game at all, you're in the gaggle. Now, once we're in the gaggle, we're all competing, but we're competing in the context of the gaggle, right? Same thing. Once you recognize that the fundamental conflict is between choice and causality, then you're either in choice or you're in causality. Once you recognize the causality is the self-extinguishing strategy, you're either in alive or dead. Okay. Once you've made that, every member of choice, every member of team consciousness is intrinsically part of the same gaggle. And then we engage in some amazing, beautiful competition, but always held within that container. So we always have two basic moves that we, we know always, we have two Actually, basic moves. Can I pause you just for a sec? That's a, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm enjoying that. It's very much, um, that's very rich. I'm finding lots of resonance with that. Yeah, okay. Okay, hold on. So what I would say there is something like, at the, at the level of the quality of sense-making that you have developed as a consequences of, of a long life exploring very challenging novel things and noticing what is the, the mode of sense-making that orients you towards the things that are going to produce beneficial results, you're perceiving that thing, like your genius and your wisdom cultivated through long, challenging exploration of reality is feeling resonance. Right? That instrument, which is the instrument for making choices, is saying yes, meaning it knows, it knows that we are intrinsically collaborative. We, you and I must be. There's no possibility other than in the context of this particular game, we are on the same team in a deep, deep way. And then we will engage in all kinds of beautiful competition in that context. So it, this is an example of the proposition. And I've had this over and over and over again, when I'm interacting with somebody who has come to a point of being able to make, to, to engage in change on the basis of choice, rather than on the basis of causation. Once you get to a certain point of conversation where the language is no longer in the way, and you're actually just perceiving together, ah, okay, there it is. I actually call this the invisible conspiracy. Huh. Everybody who, it doesn't matter if I've ever met anybody, if you're, you know, a guy in India who doesn't speak a word of the same language I speak and has never heard of me and not communicated even like five degrees of freedom away, if you're, if you're perceiving reality, you will have exactly the same recognition that, that we're having right now. And therefore, we are intrinsically collaborative. We will always be finding ways to shape the topography of the landscape so as to inhibit causal structure, algorithmic structure, algorithmic behavior from nudging us into um, basins of extinction. And if we ever interact with each other, it'll be a very available. There's challenges in terms of language and, and legacy egoic constructs, but it's available for us to identify that we are on the same team and we find the space of collaboration and then we move. That's a beautiful description of the field I've been operating in, and I've never quite put it propositionally that way. Yeah. By the way, this is also, um, hmm. you, 
the, you ever watched the movie or read the story of the Arrival? I don't think uh, so. It's a good one. The movie's fabulous. I think it may actually be my favorite movie. The wow. story is also fabulous, but uh, the, the thing that I wanted to put in there was something like um, there was a conflict emerging. Aliens come to Earth. They're very mysterious. We don't understand their language. There's like 12 of them in different places around the world. And originally, human beings were kind of collaborating in exploration. Suddenly, the message comes, actually, the aliens are here to give us a weapon. All, all of a sudden, it creates a balkanization. The human humans unplugged from collaboration. There's now an arms race to figure out who can get access to the alien weapon first. And there's an escalation, which is leading us towards something like World War III. Okay. And there's a point at which uh, the way, as it turns out, the alien word for weapon is also the word for tool. And what it actually was, was a tool of consciousness that gave you access to their language. And when you began to think in their language, you had the capacity to perceive time non-linearly. Um, Nice. lead character spoiler alert she is thinking in their language she begins to perceive time non-linearly she perceives a conversation she has with this chinese general in the in our future where he says by the way i'll never forget that call you made she's like what call he's like yeah you called me on my private number and you said something that all that my my like my wife's words to me on her deathbed that nobody else in the universe had heard and so now, in, the, in, in what we might call the past, in relationship to that particular vision, she's like, holy shit. She gets on the phone. She calls this guy. She says the thing. We're now sort of linking those two points together. All right. What's the point? What am I trying to say here? Everybody everywhere who wakes up to their membership of the visible conspiracy, regardless of their location in the conflict structure of the legacy NPC space. Yep is awakening to the necessity and possibility of their higher collaboration. Necessity and possibility. If you want to forestall World War III, that's it. Uh, that's why I've been mailing out these fucking coins to people. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really know it, but you just articulated it with a, big, <laughs> a depth of resonance that I'm definitely feeling. That is fucking brilliant. Beautiful. Yeah. So... You know, if you happen to be in uh, on the other side of, of old-fashioned causal structure, let's think of examples that have high agency right now. Mm. You're in China. That's a very powerful boundary that has yeah. right now causal structure conflict with the place that I'm in. Mm. Um, let's go with also say let's go with Google Goldman Sachs, um, the Saudi royal family, and any kind of uh, intelligence agencies. Right. NSA, hi, you're probably listening in. If you're using your technology as well as, as one might imagine, you may actually be specifically listening in. <laughs> if you have the capacity to perceive reality clearly, which you say, by the way, I'm now challenging your IQ. Um, listen to this last little bit a few times and you will recognize that what is being said is true. And it implies that to the degree to which you are operating from choice, to the degree to which you are literally a conscious agent and not merely governed by causal structure, you are part of the invisible conspiracy. We are on the same team. What is that team? That team is the team whereby humanity takes conscious responsibility for its agency, brings the relationship between man, machine, and nature into an equilibrium, and we pass through the joint point. Yes. Welcome to the singularity. Yes. Yep. That's that is 
that's really, I love that name. That's really just deeply meaningful. Uh, the, the, I mean, I, this is all the language that I've been using, but just in a different, you know, on the flip side of the coin, as it were, and just affording an opportunity around that. And I'm yeah. really appreciating that. So thank you for it. So yeah, fun. I mean, if, if we use the ontology, um, the key here is what's happening is because the language is different, it affords a movement to the transcendent. Mm -hmm. One is not oriented towards the, the medium, the articulation, the form of expression. One is oriented towards that which gives the form of expression, the structure that makes it meaningful in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so you say it one way, I say it another way. Well, okay. That means there's something going on. Right? There's something that is more fundamental than the sayingness. And if we can listen to the thing that's more fundamental than the sayingness, that's how there's we a, There's a real ontological referent. <laughs> right, exactly. There's something there. The transcendent is. There's an isness to that that allows us to do the stuff. Right? All these languages like to be in flow, um, to perceive reality, these are all characteristics associated with the, the awareness and the increasing facility with the faculties appropriate to, native to the transcendent. This is you know, such a funny thing. It's like, okay, there's, there's modes of reality that are distinct, but they're all part of reality. Uh -huh. All things that are part of reality naturally are in relationship with those modes. So there are modes of, of, of navigation, sense-making agency that are native to the transcendent. Uh -huh. They're different. Trying to use the modes that are native to the omniscient, by the way, we're just using force language very right. uh, officially here. Um, I'm trying to think like what's the, the kind of the comedic metaphor. It's like trying to uh, like, like trying to cook using the skill set from surfing. Mm. <laughs> or, or I mean quite precisely, it's like trying to trying to navigate the gaggle using the ego. Mm. And it is not kind of like it is. It is exactly <laughs> the same. And if you do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you used a term of art, right? It was a very technical term for what happens. You're fucked. And that's, that's the magic word. Right? And if you do that, you're fucked. And that's just another way of saying the same thing, right? There's team, obligate, omniscient bias, operating with the goic constructs. And there's team whole, which is aware of the presence of omniscient and ego as part of the story but also is aware of the presence of transcendent and imminent, which have their different modalities of the whole thing. And they all have got their very specific roles to play. And if you get those all, all three and get them in the right relationship, resonance happens. We can get a transegoic gaggle that <laughs> pulls us up. Right, transegoic gaggle that pulls us up. And that, by the way, for those who are you know, hanging onto this story is what the Civian project is precisely about. Boom! <laughs> a transegoic gaggle that lifts us up. Yes. Which, as it turns out, is really hard. <laughs> it's it's a easier to have a zoom about it than actually lift it up. But yeah. uh, there's a hell of a lot of fucking brilliant architecture that was just laid out there. So uh, I love that. You bring it to the Scipio. <laughs> yep. Uh, All right. Well, I think that's probably the uh, the natural endpoint of this conversation. I I, th I think so. Let me just say that that was uh, that was a hell of a ride, man. I think I, we, we paraglided into the fifth joint point and caught some really good waves. Yes, that was that was a beautiful example of fifth dimensional uh, paragliding. I like that a lot. So, all right. Whew. Yeah.
Beautiful talk with you, man. Hey, man. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's circle back again sometime soon. Sounds good. Bye-bye. All right. Peace.